we come to the second reading of Scripture for this morning, which is Acts chapter 15. And we're going to read verses 1 through 29. 1 through 29. Acts chapter 15, 1 through 29. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 923. So I invite you to stand as you're able for the reading of God's inspired word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God had first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send to them Uh, To Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, they sent Judas, uh, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood 
and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. There's one surefire way to highlight the importance of an issue, to give weight to its importance, and that's to call a meeting over it. Uh, some of you can even think of waiting meetings at work or, or other places that, uh, that have wrestled with, with some issue, and right away when your boss says, we're going to have to have a meeting, right? And I need you to come in and talk to me. There's a meeting. You start wondering, well, this must be awfully important. Or, you know, if, uh, in a family, if dad says, you know, we're going to have to get the family together. Everyone's going to sit around the table because we, we have to meet. We have to talk about this. This is important. Just puts importance upon um, an issue. And uh, Acts 15 is no different. It's the first major meeting of the church. It's, it's the first council, the first uh, presbytery, if you'll let me use that word. Uh, that is what is going on in, in Acts chapter 15. There is a meeting of such importance, such weight, uh, that the whole church uh, gets together uh, to meet over it. And of course, it's the issue of what? It's the issue, um, well, the surface level issue is over whether Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved. Whether they need to be circumcised and submit to the laws of Moses in order to be saved. Or... Uh, whether that's not really required. But really, as we start to look into this, what we're going to start to see is this is no just mere peripheral issue. This really gets to the core of the gospel. And that's why such a meeting need, needed to take place. Because it's important. This week, we're going to talk about what the council was over. What was so important that this meeting had to be called. But we're actually going to circle back through Acts 15 next week. And next week, we're going to look at how this meeting took place, how a church government uh, got together in its mechanics, in its dynamics. So if this week is all about grace alone uh, and faith in Christ alone, next week is all about uh, the beautiful and biblical dynamics of Presbyterian church government. Because I think both are in this passage. This week, though, the thing of, of primary importance, the thing of most importance, which is this, that salvation is by grace alone. It is only through the unmerited favor of God poured out to you in Christ Jesus. It is only by receiving him by faith that you are saved. And no thing, no matter how important you might feel, should be added to that as a requirement of salvation. I want to look at this by, by seeing how we're saved by grace. And then we must notice that we, the same grace that saves us also changes us. Saved by grace, changed by grace. These are our two points. Well, notice uh, how the, the uh, first importance in this text, we notice that we are saved by grace alone. Uh, the problem that appears in this passage is that certain men from Judea, in verse 1, have come, they're, they're in Jerusalem, and they've come from Jerusalem, and they've gone about 300 miles north to Antioch, and they're spreading out, and, and they're, they're teaching uh, something that the apostles, to this point, did not teach. And it's this, that, okay, Gentiles, 
you've been welcomed into the church, um, or you know, you, you, you've, you've, you're starting to worship with us, good, but we, we need to back up. We need to back up. Because in order for you to have full communion, in order for you to become a 100% Christian, you need to submit to the laws of Moses, just like the Jews had for, uh, for thousands of years. Uh, they're saying you need to be circumcised. You need to have uh, men, that physical mark on your body, which says that you're a Jew. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. And so later we come to know these gentlemen as Judaizers. That's what they're called. But really what I want you to see is uh, this error that starts to creep into the church. It's a subtle error. Because these men don't walk around with, with white pointy hats on, with scowls on their faces, and they just look evil. They're, they're just like the men next to you in, in, in your pews. These are ordinary guys. And yet they're convinced of this. Um, and, and it's subtle as well, uh, not just because there's nothing, you know, obviously evil about what these guys are saying, uh, but also, uh, or, or how they look rather, but, but also because what they're teaching, what they're saying uh, has an initial reasonableness to it in this first century of the church. You know, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. The scriptures are Jewish texts. Uh, we are saved uh, the salvation comes first to the Jew and then to the, to the Gentile. And so, you know, there's some, something of a reasonableness, of something conservative sounding about men who would say, hey, look, why change what's been going on for thousands of years? If you're going to come, if you're going to become part of the church, um, then you need to come through the Jews. You need to be circumcised. You need to have that physical mark. And then, hey, it's welcome. They're saying, we, we don't have any problems with Gentiles coming into the church. We don't have any issues with that as, as long as they become Jews. It's just a simple little task. Circumcision, you know, following the law, law of Moses. And yet, this is a sinister error. It's diabolical. It's evil to its core, uh, really, when you get down to it because of what it does to the gospel. Now, this is, this is what they're proposing. They're proposing a Jesus plus theology, whether they know it or not. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the law of Moses. They say, wow, isn't this such good news that Jesus came to save people from their sins? Well, that, that's awesome, but, uh, but you, you, need, you need just one other thing if you're going to be saved. You need just one other thing if we're going to um, you know, uh, assure you that your sins are forgiven. You need to be circumcised. You need to become like us. You need to become Jews. You know, it really takes away the freedom from grace to do this. It does. Anything we add as a requirement of salvation will soon crowd out faith, just pushes it aside. Have you noticed that that's how it works? You see this, I mean, some of you might've grown up with this. This is what I've seen done in Catholicism over and over again. They'll say, yeah, you're, we're saved by grace. It's God's, it's God's favor. It's God's grace to us. Um, and so you need to embrace Jesus. And then you also need uh, to, to receive all the sacraments. And you need to say this many Hail Marys. And you need to go to confession. You need to do this. And they're saying, what are they doing? They're starting to add sacraments as a, cert, uh, as a sort of um, co-requirement alongside Christ. And then slowly but surely what you see, what, it, it makes sense. Faith gets pushed out of the way, and it's that thing that we can easily do. We can, abs we can uh, well, easily, right? We can go through the motions of doing that takes center place. 
What about fundamentalism that some of you might have grown up with? Uh, and I'm not talking about the good kind of fundamentalism that's, connect, uh, that's committed to the fundamentals of the faith, but I'm talking about the fundamentalism that says, hey, if you, um, you, know, if, if you drink or you get tattoos or if you, uh, you do all these, these peripheral things that we feel totally uncomfortable with, then you're not really a Christian. You need to act the way we do. You need to wear a suit and tie when you come to church. And then we can really say you're a Christian. Uh, some of you grew up with this, didn't you? Some of you grew up with this kind of error, even in, in subtle kinds of ways in which um, maybe it was even your family members added co-requirements to salvation and acted like you're not a Christian if you don't do these things that the, that the Bible doesn't explicitly lay upon you. Crowds out faith. And slowly but surely, yeah, what is it that's the primary thing that gives you your confidence before God? Well, it's that you're following those rules. It's not all about Jesus anymore. It's not about laying a hold of him by faith. And how relevant this is for us, what the Judaizers are doing, because it's bad for us. This is poison. You know, when, when everyone starts deliberating, this just comes out right away. Peter stands up and he, he says, look, guys, if we're going to do this, we're going to put a yoke around the necks of the Gentiles. It's really bad because If we lay this law upon the hearts of other people, then what we're essentially saying is you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to measure up. The law, when it's treated as a requirement for salvation, is like a burden that you just can't get away from. Because it's always saying, do more, be better, follow, follow it more strictly. You can get closer. You can be, uh, uh, you can be better. And, and you're always... Uh, going to be lacking something. You're always going to be looking back on your past. You're always going to be haunted by all the ways that you've fallen short of God's perfect law. A yoke around your neck. It's like living before you know a, a dad. Some of you had this experience. A dad that just never smiled at you, never took pleasure in you, but always had a scowl on his face reminding you that you, you've messed up. That's what it's like to live under the yoke of legalism. And we can live under the yoke of legalism in the big ways, right? Kind of ways of like adding circumcision as a requirement for salvation, right? That's a big picture legalism. Or like saying, um, you know, you, you have to do this many Hail Marys and then you, then you can be um, at peace with God. That's a big kind of legalism. But there are also subtle ways that this creeps in. It's like when you, when, when you slip up, when you sin, when you, uh, it, it's like instead of saying right away, I know that was wrong, but I have a God who says no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to get back on the right track. It's like living under the constant message to yourself. No, I sinned and God is frowning. I sinned and God hates me. I sinned and I have to do something right. I have to, I have to beat myself up. I have to tell myself, um, you know, I'm not going to eat for so many hours or, or I'm not going to be happy for so many hours until I finally done proper penance. That's a yoke. That's a yoke that you, you wear on your shoulders. Legalism is bad for us. Legalism is also bad for others. It's because when we put others under the same yoke, it's like a 1,000 pound weight that they just can't bear up. No one's going to meet the, the, uh, the righteous requirements of God's law. No one's going to measure up to our rules and our standards that we invent. 
And so when they don't measure up, what do we do? We look with people in this constant critical kind of way saying, I wonder if he is really a Christian. I wonder if she's really serious. Hmm. Am Am I the only one in this church who really gets it? Am I the only one in this church that really is righteous? Sometimes it feels like like everyone else just doesn't measure up. So this is why the apostles take this error so seriously. And they say, no, we're, we're, we're coming after this thing. The solution comes in verse 11. After Barnabas and... Um, Paul stand up and say, hey, no, guys, look, we've actually seen Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. We've seen them uh, being blessed by God. Then Peter gets up and he says, yeah, and and I have a doctrinal reason for why we have to stay committed uh, to, to not requiring this of the Gentiles. It's because of this. Verse 11. Look at that. In verse 11, he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Grace alone. That's the solution to this problem. Grace alone. Can you find a better text, proof text for grace alone? The unmerited favor of God alone. And I love how he says this. Look. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And otherwise, in other words, Judaizers, you need to humble yourself to, to see that you have something to learn from these Gentiles. What do you have to learn from them? That they've received God not because they've, that they tried hard enough, not because they, they bore all the right marks or had the right rituals, but because they simply came to God with open hands and says, give me Jesus. I have nothing to offer you in return. Just give me him and I'll live out of gratitude. And Peter looks at his fellow Jews and he says, that's what we need. That's what we need. Circumcision isn't necessary. Law keeping, the the law of Moses, not necessary for salvation. We need to learn from the Gentiles. And then James stands up and he says, you know, everything that's been said so far is right on. Let me add one other thing. The scriptures in Amos chapter 9 already said this, that the Gentiles were going to be welcomed into the people of God. And there's nothing there about some sort of them becoming Jews. They're welcomed into the people of God. There's nothing that we can do, friends, to earn God's favor. But Jesus has done everything necessary in his life, death, resurrection. All we need to do is lay a hold of him by faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. I need you. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I clean. Now, let me ask you, do you believe that's true? Because you know what Martin Luther said? He said, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Martin Luther himself was a tortured soul who for hours and hours and days and days, years and years, just said, have I done enough? Have I pleased God? Am, am, Am I good enough? And it was finally when he read the book of Romans, when he heard Paul explicate this beautiful doctrine, justification, righteousness by, with God uh, through faith alone, alone, not our righteousness, but the righteousness received from Jesus Christ. He said, he looked at that and he said, this changes everything. And yet he said how hard it is to really believe that because we want to have something to offer to God. We want to have that kind of control where we say, hey, God, 
I think you should pay attention to me. I think you should send me to heaven because I did my little part. I checked these boxes. I did better than them, Lord. I'm really righteous. It's not true. Grace alone, the unmerited favor of God alone, nothing that we do. Are you glad that that's true? Do you believe it's true? Are you glad it's true? Amen. If you're struggling with being glad that that's true, ask God that that soon, very soon, he would open your mind, show you the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins, peace with God by grace alone. So grace saves us. And that's why this meeting is so important. It's a gospel issue. But then we start to see something happening. And notice that there's this letter that's sent out. And and James says, all right, we don't want to burden the Gentiles. So let's give them, let's tell them what they need to do. And and he said, Gentiles, we're not going to lay any burden um, upon you more than this. Okay, you ready? Here it is. You need to abstain from, from sexual immorality. You need to abstain from um, participating in sacrifices offered to idols. And you shouldn't be eating food that's strangled or with blood in it. You shouldn't drink blood. It's like, what? <laughs> that's a weird list. In fact, it, this is a difficult part of the passage. I just want to be honest about that. But there, I think there is an answer. I think there is a way to explain this. Verse 20 is here, not just to confuse us, but to show us that the same soul that is saved by grace is a soul that is changed by grace, transformed. God's unmerited favor in Christ never leaves us wallowing in sin. Now, what does that have to do with the list? Well, at first you look at this list and it almost seems like the church is compromising, like they're setting up a mini list of laws. Okay, you don't have to keep all the law, Moses. You don't have to do circumcision. But here's like four things that you should should pay attention to? No, I don't, I don't think that's it. How about this? Are they, are they insisting upon these things? And they are requirements, by the way, not suggestions, but requirements. Are they requirements uh, because the Gentiles are going to be living amongst Jews and those Jews are going to have a really hard time with this stuff. And um, they need to practice these things out of consideration for their Jewish brothers. And I'll, I'll, there, there's, there's some reasonableness to that answer. But I think the very best answer comes from this. What do these four things in the list have in common? Here's what they have in common. They are all associated with Gentile pagan religion. Each one of these things. If you were to go into a pagan temple at this time, and, and Gentiles, every single Gentile was very familiar with pagan temples. It was their life. If you were to walk into a pagan temple, you would see food being sacrificed to idols. You would witness, take part in sexual immorality in the form of of temple prostitution. You would encounter uh, the priest or priestess taking uh, the, the, the food that's being sacrificed to idols and strangling that. There's specific instructions that we found in text today that said, take these uh, these uh, animals and you're going to kill them by strangling them. And then you would see actual descriptions in which the priest and priestess and participant would drink the blood of these sacrifices. And what, what do the brothers uh, meeting in Jerusalem say to that? No more of that. No more of that. 
You're going to turn away from pagan idolatry to serve the living God. That's our requirement. Our requirement is repentance. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance. And repentance means what? Turning away from sin, turning away from idolatry to lay a hold of Jesus by faith. So God says, if you're going to be saved by grace alone, you're turning away from sin and you're laying a hold of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 praises the Gentiles. It says, you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. 1 Corinthians 10, 21 through 24 says this, you cannot drink the cup of Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons in the temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with pagan idols? You see, 1 Corinthians 10 says this, flee from idolatry. This is a very live issue for Gentiles. And so the requirement is very live and upfront to them. We're not going to lay upon you all these rules of circumcision and rituals and ceremonial law, but we are going to tell you this. If you're going to serve the living and the true God, turn away from the paganism of the temple. Turn away from the paganism of your former life and its idolatry. Don't participate in that anymore. And it would be a very real pull to participate because society expected it. Friends, so too, we must flee the pagan idolatry of our own day and age. We must embrace grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But we must embrace it in such a way that we, we flee from, from um, the sins of our former life and lay a hold of Jesus and not wallow in that sin anymore. We must flee from the drunkenness that defines the parties of, of our world. We must flee from the sexual immorality that is on, you know, you just drive through UD on a Friday, sec, uh, Friday or Saturday uh, night and you'll see we live in a city that is that worships sexual immorality. Flee from that. Turn away from that. That can't define you anymore. Flee from the pagan obsession with career and success and money and turn to serve the living God. And as you do this, friends, as you flee from your sin to seek out Jesus, realize that there's nothing that we give up, that we don't receive back a hundredfold in Christ. As we're transformed, as we're changed by his grace, we realize Jesus was worth it. He's worth it. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what Acts 15 was about. That's what that meeting was about. It's a grace that doesn't leave us wallowing in sin. It's a grace that changes and transforms us. That's why it's so beautiful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take the next few weeks looking at this council, help us to appreciate the weight that you give to this matter in your church. Help us to really grasp the fact that it is by grace that we're saved. Nothing we do blood of Christ alone. He suffered on the cross for the sins that we deserve. And because he did that in our place, it is finished. And as we embrace him, there's nothing more that we must do to be righteous before you 
but you do call us to receive this and then live it out full of gratitude. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.